All right, let's jump in here today. And uh, this is like absolute craziness. Today is the end of the last apostle. Today marks the final Sunday of going through the writings of John. John was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was the last of the living apostles. And at the end of his life, knowing that he was at the end of an era, chose to write down his experience, his stories, and his insights of what he witnessed in Jesus. And then writing after that to encourage churches, some under persecution, others in confusion about what the way of Jesus really looks like like, and today we hit the end. We are at 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to read to you the entire passage. It's about seven or eight verses, and then we're going to step back and just debrief it and dig into what I think God is trying to tell us through the words of this last apostle together. 1 John chapter 5. Here we go, verse 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have life of the age to come. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother or sister committing a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, Even in his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and life of the age to come. So, dear children, keep yourself from idols. Now, I am a story guy. I like stories. And I don't just mean like standing up here and trying to communicate stories. I mean, it's kind of where I hum and resonate in life. It doesn't matter so much to me. TV, movies, books, fiction, nonfiction, history, story-based, musical. It doesn't matter. Even, even music that you listen to that's really telling a story, I find that I tend to gravitate to more than others. I just love Stories, And one thing that I know that you've seen, if you've interfaced with this stuff in any kind of way, is that people love twist endings, right? Like, what is a movie? What is a TV show? What is something without a twist ending anymore? So I just kind of sampled through a few of mine. Bruce Willis is actually dead the whole time, right? Twist ending. If it is a spoiler at this point in your life, shame on... 
there is a sin that leads to death, and that might be it. <laughs> so, if you're ready for more spoiler alerts, okay, guys, brace yourself for this one. Darth Vader is actually Luke's father? <gasps> really? Really, what? What? But you keep going, and you know, think of all the epic ones. Neo dies, right? It gets worse. Frodo keeps the ring. And he snaps his finger. And half of the world literally disappears. Now, some of you are going, I don't know any of these stories. And that too is a sin that leads to death, and we won't pray for you. But know that with God, there is always an invitation to repent. And if you are realizing that you need to learn the important things of life, come talk to me afterwards and we'll guide you. But it's twist endings. And the thing is, like we're going through this and it's almost kind of laughable. It's a joke, right? Because these twist endings don't even feel like a twist anymore, do they? They've become so familiar, so part of the plot line. We know them so well that it doesn't even strike us as odd that it ends this way. I think of the gospel. It is the exact same way. We are so accustomed to the punchline that Jesus dies and then raises again that we forget that that is a twist ending in and of itself because the longer you get to know a story, the more familiar you get with it, right? The less surprising it tends to feel. And yet I remember being a six-year-old boy standing in line with my dad to see the Empire Strikes Back on opening day. Not opening night, because my dad would go to bed at like 7 p.m. and I was six. But opening day, waiting two blocks down the, down the road in line to meet this creature called, I thought it was yoga, because I was six, all right? And that's what you do when you're six. And then realizing that the toys that I played with, that, that Vader was Luke's dad. Oh my gosh. Guys, some of you were there. Mind blow, right? And so many other stories are the same way. In fact, twist endings have become so much of a plot device that we're not even surprised when there is a surprise anymore. In fact, have you ever watched a movie or you're watching like a TV season and you, you've thought you've known where it's going to go all along, but you're like, they're going to pull the rug out on me. You know, there's going to be some kind of twist. And then there isn't a twist and you're disappointed. You're like, that's it? Because twist endings have become so common that we don't even think of them as being surprises anymore. Except, I would argue, when it comes to the Bible at large. Because I think what happens is we start reading stories in the Bible and then we don't know what to do with the twist ending. Let me give you an example. There's a parable that Jesus shares about a manager who knows that because he is embezzling, is going to be let go, let go from his employer. So what he does is he hurries up and he cooks the books and fixes the account. He calls in all of the creditors or, or all of the people who are indebted to his master. And he goes, 
quick. I know it says that you owe a thousand bushels of wheat. Make it 800. And he goes to this person. I know it says that you owe like 600 gallons of olive oil. Like make it 300. And then the point of the story that Jesus steps back with is going, the master finds out and he commends the servant for being shrewd. And he says, you should be the same way in the kingdom of God. And we're like, what do you do with this? Because in all of life, twist endings are as predictable as can be. But when the Bible twists the ending, it throws us on our heels. And I think that the end of 1 John ends with a twist ending as well that a lot of people also don't know what to do with. Now let me frame it for you. 1 John 5, verse 13, the passage that I just read to you today. It starts with this line, and it starts in the way that you would write a conclusion to a paper. So, all of you who had to suffer through high school, do you remember English and do you remember the plot device? Do you remember how you would write a paper? You write an introduction that kind of tells you where you're going to go. Then you write at least three main points and you try to back them up and argue them. And then you come to the end and you have a conclusion that sums the whole thing up. You're with me? Are you having flashbacks on this? Is anyone getting hives or cold sweats? <laughs> all right. So, John sets it up. He sets it up. And let me read the intro to you. He says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you life of the age to come or eternal life, as the NIV will put it. Which was, from the, which was with the Father and has appeared to us, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make joy complete. What are we telling you? We're telling you what we witnessed. We're telling you what we saw. We're telling you what we've heard because you're hearing a lot of nonsense out there. And so we want to bring you back to the source. Let us tell you what actually happened. Because by telling you what actually happened, maybe, just maybe, you will come to believe and have faith that this Jesus actually is the Christ, actually is the Son of God, actually brings life in his name. And by having life in his name, you will have joy, you will have fellowship, you will have life of the age to come. That's what First John is all about. And you see how we're at a conclusion sentence right here? John comes to the end of his letter. And after arguing this the whole time, he's wrapping it up. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. I'm writing it to you, you who have dared to believe, so that you'll know something. So that you'll know that you have eternal life, or as I like to say, life of the age to come. Because sometimes we don't know, sometimes we wonder, sometimes we doubt, sometimes we speculate, sometimes we get caught up going, what really is life after death and what is the life after life after death that Jesus talks about? Sometimes we get paralyzed in these things, certainly uncertain in these things. A lot of times people get afraid about these things, but John says, no, let me tell you what we saw. Let me tell you what we heard. Let me tell you about resurrection. And by telling you about that, 
let me reinforce to you that you who have put your faith in the name of the Son of God will have that same kind of resurrection as well. You have life, eternal life, life of the age to come, and you can plant your feet in it with certainty. This is what John is about. Christ has come. Put your faith in him because there you will find life. And after going through this entire concluding section, he throws this line out. So little children, keep yourself with idols. To which I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? Do you ever, okay, honesty time, right? Because we're in church and you can be honest. A lot of people don't realize that, by the way. They don't think they can be honest in church. They think they have to hide. They think they have to mask. They think they have to put on good behavior. They think they have to shield themselves behind a persona. God wants you honest. And this is the place that you can be honest about your struggles, your doubts, your questions, and your shortcomings. You have these moments where you're reading the Bible and you're like, what does this have to do with anything? Like, like, why is this here? Or how is like he going from point A to point D? Because it doesn't seem like there's a B and C in the middle. You're telling us to like find assurance in Christ. And then for the first time in the whole letter, you go, little children, keep yourself from idols. What is going on? And this is what I want to unpack for you today. When we think of idols, you got a mental picture, right? Don't we often think of something like this? Some kind of statue, if you will. Maybe stone, maybe wood, maybe something else, but it's something carved or something painted. And it usually sits in like some kind of like sacred space. It could be a shrine. It could be a temple. It could be a place where many people come together. It could be 50 feet tall. It could be like, you know, like that. It might be in someone's living room. There's probably candles around it. Maybe some incense there. Maybe someone laying flowers at it or food at it or something like that. I had the privilege of going to India on a mission trip several years ago. And what India as a country is known for is their idols everywhere. The, 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 the religion of 70 million gods, as they will put it. And I think I saw half of them. Because every street, every corridor, every home, every restaurant that you would walk to would be some kind of like niche, some kind of alcove, some kind of platform, some kind of temple with some kind of carved figure there. But it's not Hinduism alone. It's replete through human history. But is this not the picture you get when someone says, idol, here's an elephant man, or a person with eight arms, or some kind of giant figure holding a lightning bolt, or some kind of little figurine, whatever it might be. I think that's where most people go when they think of idols. But I'd like to break down this phrase for you. What an idol actually is in what John might be getting at here. Because an idol at its base root was always meant to be a representation of the very thing that it represents. So people who get how idol worship works never actually think that this idol is actually the God. No, it's a representative. It's an image. 
It's a depiction, if you will, and maybe a channel as well of connectivity to him. But the point that I want you to remember is this, that an idol is meant to be a representation of something greater. Are you with me? And this is why the Ten Commandments are so insistent that you shall not have any graven images. And for the ancient Hebrews, this was not just about foreign gods, but this was about Yahweh too. Because any time you make a representation of something, you automatically distort it. Because the only way to not distort it is to see the actual thing. Have you ever heard the phrase that every map is a lie? Because as good and helpful as a map may be, at some level, there is a distortion of features to make it lay out to dimensionally. Have you ever looked on a map and went, wait, look, like the latitude lines aren't the same spacing there. And like green looks like it's the size of like, you know, the moon. And you look at Indian, it looks like it's the size of like a state. You ever have this experience? You ever trying to follow a map and things look closer and you're like, why is that so far away? You ever look at a map and you drive through a town and you go, this town isn't on the map. Why isn't it there? Have you ever been following GPS and it tells you to turn down a road and you're like, this road does not exist. You've seen the office. Have you ever ended up in a lake? <laughs> Are you with me? Just like every map at some point is a distortion or a lie, at some point, every image, every idol is a distortion and a lie too. Because as the crafter seeks to emphasize certain things, other things inevitably get left out or distorted in the mix. Are you with me? And I want to submit to you that we do this all the time with God. I'm not just talking about people of a different religion. I'm not just talking about people who don't ally themselves or align themselves with a certain historic faith perspective. No, I'm talking about people who claim to be professing Christians, people who gather in churches, people like you and me who are in a place like this today. I want to submit to you that we concoct idolatrous issues of God, uh, um, uh, images of God all the time. Let me give you an example. When we make a statement, well, God would never, but then you look at an example of the Bible when God did, you have just distorted who God actually is. If you say something like, God is always, and that always statement so overshadows other things that don't fit into your definition, you've distorted who God is. If you were to say something like, God will never judge. Well, God clearly does. You have a distorted version of God. If you were to say, God is angry. He might get angry on occasion, but if that is your sum total understanding of who God is, you now have a distorted image of God that's looking at one characteristic and ignoring many many others. Are you with me? We do this all 
the time. And we do this with other relationships too. I remember growing up, you have certain images of your dad. Let me ask, is your picture of your dad different in adulthood than it was in early childhood? And yet, in early childhood, you arguably spent more time with your dad than ever. Why is that? Because we always see from a certain perspective. We always see from a certain bed of experience. We always see from a certain vantage point, And we come to construct an image about who that person is, even if they're standing right there in our midst. And if you're a good artist, maybe you can do a great sketch. But when it comes to describing their character, their nature, their motivation, their history and story, the things that make the fullness of who they are, how many of us operate with a certain degree of ignorance with those who are closest with us and end up loving or hating a distorted version of who we made that person to be more than the actual person themselves. Are you with me? Have you ever had those surprises when you always thought about dad in one way. And then you, thought, you come across like love notes he wrote to mom back when they were dating. And you're like, him? <laughs> Do you have a certain image of your dad? And then you go back and you see pictures. When he's smiling. And you're like, I don't remember my dad ever smiling. Sitting on a motorcycle jumping out of a plane, with hair. (laughs) You know what I mean. Now, if we do that with human relationships, which we are here immersed in all the time, would you agree with me that an argument can be made that it's that much easier to do with God as well? God who is unseen. God, who is not here in the same capacity as this person sitting next to you today. And the danger is, if we start constructing these certain ideas about God, and if these ideas are not encapsulating the totality of who he is, and we start believing in those ideas and basing our life on those ideas, what we have done is we have substituted the true God for an idol instead. It is very easy to be a Christian who claims to worship God and who in reality worships idols instead. Well, John is writing to these Christians and they are starting to believe very strange things about God. People are rewriting the history of who Jesus is. They're saying these things about Jesus that John is like, wait a minute, I saw it. I touched him. I heard it from his own lips. I was there. That is not how it went down. But it's so easy to follow our own logic, our own ideas, our own preferences and proclivities, who we want God to be or what we're convinced he's like, that we can start to set those up against what God has said about himself. Yes, it is very 
easy to fall into idolatry. And John writes to these people and he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God because you have come to believe in the truest manifestation of who God is. Do you want an image of God? Look to Jesus. That's why Paul will write, he is the image of the invisible God. If you want an idol, look to Jesus. He is the physical representation of who the unseen God is. That's why Paul will write, he is the image or idol of the invisible God. And John, knowing this, says, I write these to you so that you'll believe. I write these things to you who do believe. Why? So that you'll know when uncertainty starts creeping in. I know a lot of people that if I could talk broadly, I would say don't know God. I don't like to get into the debate so much. Are you a believer? Are you not a believer? I think there's a place for that. But I see people more on a certain kind of spectrum, if you will, with people at various degrees of knowledge and insight and faith in God and understanding of the truth of who God is. But all of this is just a way of saying that I know a lot of people who really don't have a lot of certainty in their heart about who he actually is. And you know what I have found? Far more than comfort, that uncertainty breeds fear. I've noticed that more and more people tend to be afraid of God because they're not quite sure about him except they know that he's pretty strong and pretty big. But in their heart of hearts, they don't know, is he actually good? Does he actually love me? Is he actually fighting for me? Or am I possibly on the outs with him? And that breeds fear. Uncertainty about God, I find, often brings and invites that kind of fear because when you stand before the powers of this world and particularly the powers of this universe and you know that they can boom you in an instant, that's scary. It's scary to think of, to entertain the possibility or to glimpse power like that, especially if you don't know a lot about it. But John writes, you don't have to live in that uncertainty and that fear because we've seen it, we've heard it, and we testify it to you. I write these things to you who believe so that you will know, so that you will know that you have life. Because what John says is Jesus brings this, life. God is a God who brings life. God is not a God looking to take life, to ruin life, to smother life. God is not a God who's looking to diminish life, to temper life. God is a God full of life. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. God wants the fullness of life. And God 
He's the author of the fullness of life. And John writes in Jesus, you may know that you have that fullness of life, that life of the age to come, not a life that's temporary, transient, or meaningless. A life with purpose that's full and rich, that will never end, and that even in struggle now, even in suffering now, even in attack now, a life that cannot be broken, even if it can be taken away in the temporary. This is what he says Jesus brings, life to the full. You want life? Look to Jesus, he says. And that breeds confidence, certainty, and with its strength, hope. And that's why John will write, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, no longer having to step towards him timidly, no longer having to avert our eyes and slink in crawling, no longer having to grovel, being able to go before God with boldness, confidence, joy, like a child to a dad who loves him. Knowing you can come with anything. Not fearing a dad in heaven who will strike you down. No. Approach him with confidence, he says. So much so that we can ask anything according to his will. And he hears us. Some of you have a dad like that? Who you could tell anything? who you could ask anything. You have a heavenly dad like that. Let me tell you, no matter what your earthly dad is like. For those of you who had a dad like that, did he always give you everything? Not if he loved you. Sincerely. But you could ask. And did you notice that if you ask for the things that were good, that were needed. Did you notice that he was always seeking to give you that which is good beyond measure? You've got a heavenly dad like that. Regardless of what your earthly dad is like, we can ask anything according to his will. And he hears, and if we know that he hears, we can live in the confidence that God will provide. Are you with me? Now, one thing we talked about, talk to God about, one thing we ask for is forgiveness. So John will push on. He says, if you see a brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. Really? Yeah, I guess, really. Um, All wrongdoing is sin. And there is a sin that does not lead to death. What is going on? It's a bit of a head scratcher. But let me give you what I think is a really good guess. What we have seen through the Gospel of John, what we've seen through the letters of John, and what you'll see through the Bible is basically this. God brings forgiveness in full. There is no sin too great, no sin too terrible, no wrong too bad, that it is beyond God's ability to forgive. In fact, 
Paul will write, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. God's forgiveness is the cosmic trump card on any sin you lay on the table. You see that through the Bible, beginning to end. Except when you cut off the very source of forgiveness itself. Because God doesn't just in heaven ethereally send out forgiveness. No, he does it through a channel. He does it through an image. He does it through an idol. He does it through Jesus. The physical representation of who he is and says forgiveness is found there. And all who call on his name will be saved. All who come to him will be saved. All who put their faith in him will be saved. But if you refuse to come to the source of forgiveness... That sin will lead to death. And there were people in this church changing the very nature of who Jesus was, including his death and resurrection, cutting off the very pipeline of forgiveness itself. And John's like, guys, these people are leading you into confusion. Guys, these people are headed towards destruction. Guys, these people are still in their sin. No matter how much they pray or what they say, because they're not seeking the truth, the reality of the forgiveness God is offering in his very presence through his son. He comes to the end. And he says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Sometimes the Bible seems to speak in very strong, matter-of-fact language. If you're in Christ, you don't sin anymore. You're like, oh, shoot. Because what does that say about me? I love the word continue. That word continue in there is a great word of grace. Would you agree? And those lapses into temptation and weakness. I think what John is getting at here is that those who are born of God are changed. There's something new that's starting to motivate them inside. Their proclivities have shifted a certain set of degrees. And the path of pursuit of sin is no longer really part of their landscape. That as children of God and born of him, like a dad, God will keep them safe will keep them from harm and the evil one has no power over them. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. And he is the true God and life of the age to come. And there's not much more to say than that except don't distort it Don't set up a false image in its place. 
Don't follow an idol of God over the reality of who he is. And by clinging to Christ, with certainty and hope, you will have life in his name. And that's what John wants you to know.